Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to this, our sixth episode in our Great Sea Fight series and this particular episode being part four, the final part of our special on the battle between USS Constitution and HMS Guerriere from the 19th of August 1812. If you've yet to check out our Great Sea Fight series, please do so. There is so much to find, each special edition consisting of several episodes. We've covered a Tudor sea battle in the reign of Henry VIII, the first time that a naval battle was fought between ships firing out of gun ports. We've covered the mighty clash between Russia and Japan at Tsushima in 1905, in which the Japanese utterly annihilated the Russians. And that comes with a brilliant animation of an eyewitness battle plan that you can find on our YouTube channel. We've covered the Battle of Jutland, that great naval battle from the First World War, Nelson's heroics at St Vincent in 1797, and the Battle of the River Plate from the Second World War. Today, we are continuing the story of USS Constitution and HMS Guerriere from the War of 1812, a ferocious single-ship engagement that rather turned the tables on what everyone was expecting from a naval fight between Great Britain and the United States. Episode 1 explained the events in a narrative, and Episode 2 presented the eyewitness account written by the ship's captains, and very splendid they are too. The third episode explored the infrastructure behind the U.S. Navy in 1812, with legendary historian of the U.S. Navy Bill Dudley telling us all about that. Uh, today we have the final episode exploring the broader context of other single ship actions in this war. For this war of 1812 was very unusual for the amount of single ship actions that took place, as opposed to fleet battles. And today we have the historian Nicholas Kaiser helping us to get to the bottom of this curious issue. Nick's a young Canadian scholar and teacher who studies the cultural history of the Royal Navy during the War of 1812, in particular analysing Anglo-Canadian responses to single ship losses of that conflict. He has an MA from Dalhousie University and is the author of Revenge in the Name of Honour, the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in the single ship actions of the War of 1812. Nick, thanks so much for speaking to me today. Oh, Sam, thank you. It's a pleasure. 
Um, so what is going on in this war? Why are there so many single ship actions? Uh, it's really a consequence of really the size of the American Navy in this conflict relative to the British Navy. So the, the two naval forces involved couldn't be any more different. So the North American squadron, so the Royal Navy forces that were operating in North America in 1812, um, it was only a small portion of the British Navy, because at this point, Britain's engaged in a war in, in Europe against Napoleonic France. But the North American squadron, even reduced in size, is still vastly superior in size to the United States Navy. Um, there's only about 20 vessels, uh, mostly small sloops in the American Navy, only about seven or eight frigates. Um, even if that numerical superiority, of course, British are pretty overstretched in the region, so they have to send out uh, lone ships to patrol sh shipping lanes, defend convoys, uh, look out after enemy ports. Meanwhile, the Americans, with for only 20-odd ships, uh, are pretty limited in what they can actually do in this conflict. It's, it's a lot like the, the Germans before during World War I and World War II where we have these isolated cruisers out in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean and the South Atlantic who are cruising alone to try and attack British shipping. And they're operating alone so that if they are caught by the Royal Navy and defeated, it's not going to be a huge calamity for the Americans because they only have a handful of ships. So a single ship action is only going to occur if certain conditions are met. Uh, one, you have to be in command of a ship on your own about any friendly forces operating around you. Two, you have to then find enemy warship also operating alone, which isn't very common. Most ships at this period in the French, British, Spanish navies are going to operate in small groups or even large fleets. So once those two ships meet, they then have to be close enough in size and firepower that both captains are willing to risk an engagement. You know, if one ship is vastly superior, they're going to flee. Because the Americans are only ever operating in groups of one or two, uh, there's a much higher chance that they're going to run into a Royal Navy ship also operating alone. So during the wider war against France, uh, there are only about 45 single ship actions between British and French ships uh, in about a 23-year period. In the about three and a half years of the War of 1812, there are 13 single ship actions. So almost a little over twice as many. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, who was the first one? The first one was actually one of the least talked about. It was uh, HMS Alert, so a small sloop of war. It had built, built as a uh, coal-carrying vessel, collier, converted into a warship, and USS Essex, which is a 32-gun uh, frigate. So it wasn't actually an even fight. And what happened was Alert was sailing, the war had just broken out, and they spot a ship off in the distance, and that is Essex, under Captain David Porter of the U.S. Navy. And they go to investigate. By the time they realize that they're facing an American ship, they realize that they're actually kind of in a bad situation. They're a slower ship, and now we're pretty close to the Americans. So the British attempt to try and cut in front of the American ship. Maybe they can knock away a few spars if they fire their guns and then try to flee. It doesn't work. Alert is captured pretty easily by the Americans. But the British's uh, captain's attempt to seemingly attack Essex, which is what it looked like to the Americans, really had a huge impact on certainly Essex's captain, David Porter, who wrote home saying, 
you know, we've asked the number of these guys. We had like twice as many guns, you know, over twice as much uh, firepower, but they still attacked us. Like this is really the, uh, what the Royal Navy is to the Americans. They, they see them as these bold uh, expectation-defying uh, group of men. And then the record of Royal Navy at the time kind of showed that. Um, Captain Cochran of HMS Speedy had done something similar. He had, and his, uh, I think, 14-gun sloop had attacked a Spanish frigate. And that made headlines around the world, especially in the United States. So even though Laura was actually trying to defeat Essex, uh, her actions uh, fulfilled the expectations of the Americans, of what the British were supposed to be doing at sea. Mm. Where does the Constitution and the Guerriere fit into all of these single ship actions kind of chronologically? Was it at the beginning or in the centre or towards the end? So it's, a f- I think, about a week or two after uh, Alert is defeated. So just in oh, okay. uh, early August. It was the first uh, single ship action between frigates of the war. And that's what the historiography and the public press had always focused on at the time. And Guerriere's exploits really actually go back to the outbreak of the war itself. So one of the key factors in the outbreak of War of 1812 was the issue of impressment of Americans by the British Navy. So mm-hmm. during wartime, the Royal Navy, according to British laws, was allowed to impress any British sailor, um, anyone who was a British subject who was a sailor, to serve in the Navy as it needed you know, a huge uh, body of manpower to man the fleet. And that created a problem with the Americans because there are contrasting notions of what citizenship meant. So in America, in this new American republic, citizenship was something that could be earned and revoked, intentionally anyway. So if you were a British uh, subject, you could leave Ireland or England or the Canadian colonies, and you go to America, join a ship, and you can be given American citizenship, and you give up your British subjecthood. That's how the Americans understood that notion. The British didn't understand it that way. For the British, uh, if you were born a British subject, you stayed a British subject. So under British law, anyone on an American ship who was born in a British colony or on the British Isles was legally allowed to be impressed into the Royal Navy. And so during the war against France, the British were particularly bold and pretty inflammatory in terms of seizing American ships. They would search them for anyone who they reasonably expected to be British um, they would have spoke the same language, had similar names, so there were a lot of confusion in this case. Uh, some sources estimate that something like 10,000 American citizens or people with some degree of American citizenship were actually impressed into the Navy. 3,000 boats were later released, but that's still 7,000 sailors who, in American eyes, were American citizens and were illegally pressed into British service. So that created a lot of contentions. And there's one event just a, a little over a year before the war breaks out. And that's when uh, Guerriere, while patrolling in American waters, stops an American warship, much smaller ship, and actually uh, impresses several Americans out of a ship uh, onto theirs. So they stopped an American uh, ship of war, takes some uh, British subjects off, and sails away. And this is the second time this had happened in the period. Um, HMS Leopard previously had done the same to USS Chesapeake. So the Americans were incensed. And so several American ships were dispatched to patrol British waters or American waters to try and 
dissuade the British from doing that again. And one of those ships was USS President. So this is a sister ship of Constitution, uh, rated 44 guns, carrying something like 54 guns. And it comes across a sloop of war named Little Belt. This is a small vessel, 18 guns. It's really a, a pipsqueak compared to President. And we're not quite sure what happens, but they end up engaging in action. Uh, someone on the, one of the two ships fires a gun and they fire their broadsides. Little Belt is smashed to pieces because it's a much smaller ship. And in the, in the months following the action, uh, President's captain claimed he had mistaken Little Belt for a frigate like Guerriere, which he had been out kind of looking for, as it had just stopped another American ship. So when the War of 1812 breaks out, Guerriere's captain, James DeCray, remembers Little Belt being attacked, being mistaken for her, his ship, and he actually paints a slogan on her for topsail, uh, not hmm. the Little Belt. So when she goes into action of Constitution, she has that painted on her uh, foresail. But not the little belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. slogan, there's a never weird history of slogans in, in this war as well. Um, uh, in, in Valparaiso in Chile in 1814, two British ships were uh, trapped in neutral harbor. They couldn't attack each other um, and break the neutrality, so they were trying to tempt each other to to fire the first shot. And so they, they responded with flying flags with slogans on them, uh, things like King George... Free trade and sailors' rights. They sang, uh, they did chants at each other. They wrote poetry towards each other, trying to tempt the other side to break neutrality first. That's excellent. I love, I love the idea of the um, sails being used almost as like a kind of an advertising mm-hmm. board. And I wonder, I wonder who was the first person to do that. Um, I suppose I'm thinking back to the Armada, where the, uh, the Spanish ships had huge crucifixes painted on their sails. Mm-hmm. And then the um, George crosses on uh, the, the English ships, yeah. Yeah, and their flags. Um, that's fascinating, isn't it? And also, it, it's an important reminder that when you, you look at a single ship action like Constitution versus Guerriere as a historian, it, you really do need to be very careful to... Uh, to look at what's happened before, both in fleet actions, but also other single ship actions, to get a sense of why things happened as they did. There's a huge magnetic pull of history into the behaviour of naval officers. Yes, exactly. And these actions in particular, um, single ship actions, especially for the British and for the Americans, had a really an outsized uh, importance. They They were very rare events, uh, historically, um, only about an average of 1.9 happened throughout the Napoleonic Wars. So when one happens, it's a huge newsworthy event. Uh, and when it came to the British versus the French and the Spanish and, and the, the Dutch, during that period, the Royal Navy won almost every action it fought. Um, and so the public were used to, you know, every half a year maybe, hearing news of a great British victory, you know, in a one-on-one action. And they were really notable and really uh, newsworthy, probably because they were, well, they're all seen like like duels, so affairs of honor. Uh, Unlike a great fleet action, which might have, you know, one side has more ships than the other, more guns than the other, single ship actions usually were between ships that are roughly of the same class. And so it really, in terms of public understanding, was a way to show you know, who was the, you know, testing one crew against the other and showing how one crew was vastly superior to the other. 
Yeah, it really made me think of the um, action of the La Belle Poule against the Arethusa, um, which is right at the start of the War of the American Revolution, and it kind of signals the French involvement in the war. And that was a, uh, an, a it was unusual because it was a single ship action, but it was particularly unusual because the British lost. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if anyone was aware of aware of that heritage in eighteen twelve. I, I imagine they would have, just based on my research into how the, it's, it's certainly how the public and the newspapers followed these actions, um, yeah. but it was almost an obsession for, especially papers in Halifax, um, where they would be gossiping about rumors of where Constitution was, you know, in 1814, for example. I am sure that anyone who was old enough to remember the American Revolutionary War would have remembered those single ship actions. And would have been thinking about them. Yeah, definitely. This role of the public in the way that these battles have come down to us is really interesting. Is there a big difference between the the way that the public understood the battle to have happened and what actually happened? Uh, Yes. um, For one thing, the public... uh, Well, the public wasn't really aware of the finer details of what, you know, a frigate class was or the details and ornaments. But so the public initially, they, they first hear news of Guerriere and Constitution. Alert doesn't even really make the headlines till much later. It's not very important. Um, but they hear news of Guerriere and the public is shocked, flatly shocked. Uh, and then the, the news of the next few single ship actions, the Macedonians lost, then the Java is lost, all before the end of 1812. And the public doesn't quite know what to think at first. Because in the public understanding, a frigate is a frigate. And so they hear one of our frigates has been defeated by an enemy frigate. What happened? Uh, they're not used to hearing about British defeats at sea in this period. Uh, they're, they're so infrequent compared to the number of victories of all types of actions. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Over time, 
uh, as more navally educated individuals start, you know, writing into newspapers, the public begin to realize that the American frigates in these actions were actually vastly superior in size and firepower to the British. So the British frigates uh, in each each three cases, Guerriere, Macedonian, Java, were all the standard modern fifth-rate frigates. So they were uh, rated at 38 guns. They actually carried more like 46, 48 guns. And they had a main battery of 18-pounders. So the shot that those cannons fired weighed 18 shots. The American frigates, on the other hand, they were rated as 44-gun frigates. They usually carried between 54 and 56 guns in total. And their main battery consisted of 24-pounder guns. So they were longer guns, they could fire at longer range, and did more damage. And the, in terms of the uh, broadside weight, so the uh, weight of all the shot of each gun uh, to weighed together, uh, the Americans had about a 50% advantage over the British ships. Once the public begins to, begins to learn of this, they begin to latch on to that fact, and it's used by the British to, to justify... Um, their understanding of British naval might and heroism. So once the British learn that the British were outgunned, they begin to understand that, oh, well, our, um, our naval heroes weren't defeated honorably, they're defeated by a superior enemy. Now, that it's doesn't, like the Americans were cheating. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And, and in some cases, later on, their accusations, especially in a Halifax paper, that the Americans were actually um, cheating in several ways. They used like grenades and other things. And they made made up facts. Okay. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. It does it highlight a kind of an expectation of behavior in warfare, doesn't it? Absolutely, and especially um, the papers wanted to highlight the gentlemanly conduct of British officers and crew versus the sort of piratical Republican conduct of American captains. Wasn't actually borne out in fact, but that's how the papers tried to spin it. So the, the newspapers are focusing on the uh, sort of extreme difference in the broadside weights. Well, mm-hmm. how, how did the serving officers sort of conceive of what was going on? What, what was their view? So it actually depended on if you were at the Admiralty tier or in high command or in command of individual ships. So if you were working in the Admiralty or you were the commander in chief of the North American squadron, you were really concerned about this. Because you do recognize that these American frigates, um, Constitution, United States, and President, they really do outmatch what the British have. Um, The British only have a few frigates armed with 24-pound guns. Uh, They'd experimented with them in the 1790s. The French experimented with them as well. But the British stopped building and manning ships with 24-pounder guns. Um, they, They found that they were able to defeat a French 24-pounder frigate with one of their smaller frigates. And the 24-pounder frigates were more expensive to man, um, more expensive to maintain, and so they started to phase them out. With the War of 1812, however, the British learned uh, quite in a shocking way that they can't actually, they couldn't expect the Americans to be as an easy target as the French had been. So the American heavy frigates are a real grave threat. So the Admiralty starts to begin issuing orders that increase in severity and specificness, um, prohibiting British frigates from attacking those American frigates one-on-one. 
Um, in July 1813, an explicit order is given that no captain is to allow a ship to fight Constitution, uh, United States president alone. If you are a captain on an individual ship or a lieutenant aboard an individual ship, the reaction was almost a polar opposite. Mm. These captains, from the accounts that I've been able to read, seem to entirely reject that premise. The premise being these American heavy frigates are too powerful for us to deal with. They, they flat out reject the, the idea. Some are concerned about a larger number of sailors on board the American frigates. They see that as a threat, but they, they don't seem to accept that the larger number of guns and the heavier guns are really worth worrying about. And so some of these serving officers and captains actually do attempt to engineer fights with the enemy. And that's another really strange aspect of, the, of this naval war is that they were like direct, like written challenges issued between captains to one-on-one fights or two-on-two fights. Hmm. Um, the most notable one was in June, well, written in May uh, 1813, and that was between the captain of HMS Shannon, Philip Broke, and the captain of USS Chesapeake, James Lawrence. Um, but bef- and that, that's a well-known event where Shannon uh, engages and defeats Chesapeake. A couple months before that, however, uh, Captain Broke had issued a earlier challenge. So he had been part of a blockading squadron watching Boston, one of Amer- the chief American naval bases. Um, so it was a squadron of a, about three frigates, two ships of the line, and a couple sloops. And inside the American port was USS President, so one of those big um, uh, heavy frigates, and then another uh, smaller frigate, both ready to sea, ready to sail. Uh, so Captain Broke, he goes to his commanding officer, Thomas Kappel, and he says, you know what, I bet if we send the bulk of our forces far away to Cape Sable, which is a uh, southern tip of Nova Scotia, um, just a little over a day's sail away, we can tempt those two American ships to come out if it's just two of us here. Rather than sit here and blockade, I think we should tempt them into a two-on-two fight so me and my friend Hyde Parker, Captain of HMS Tenedos, can defeat them, and we can avenge the losses from the, the last year uh, from USS Constitution. Now, uh, so the bulk of the British ships leave, leaving two British frigates off Boston, off the Boston port, and Broke sends in several verbal messages um, by fishermen coming in from the, with their catches into Boston to the captain of... President John Rogers, basically saying, um, come on out, let's have a two-on-two fight. Now, John Rogers didn't really fall for it. He he had a mission, and his mission was to get out to sea and do as much damage as possible. By this point, uh, the American government were thrilled with their uh, victories in 1812, but they were worried about the risk of losing ships, because they only had, you know, 20-odd. So they, they issued an order basically asking the American captains not to engage in needless fights with the enemy, to focus on attacking British merchant ships and convoys. So John Rogers uses the opportunity to escape because two frigates weren't enough to properly watch Boston Harbor. And that's mm. a, it's a calamity for the British because their strategy at this point is hinging on blockading American ports. And now two frigates, one of the heavy frigates has escaped. 
And word of that reaches Britain pretty quickly. Uh, the Admiralty starts to panic. They begin diverting ships uh, to cover convoys and to start searching for president because they don't want another loss to occur, especially in British waters, which is where president ends up sailing. And the Admiralty begins to ask questions too, because they're outraged that this blockade has failed. And so Broke remains um, off Boston with his ship uh, and his companion. The rest of the blockading squadron, which had left, they go and try to search for president. And about a month later, uh, Broke, who is still off Boston, running low on supplies, he sends his companion ship home to Halifax. He stays there because now there is a third American frigate ready to sail, USS Chesapeake. And so he writes up an explicit uh, letter basically inviting Chesapeake to come out. He can choose the location. They're going to have, hopefully going to have a one-on-one -on -one fight. Engineered, <laughs> agreed to, both promises that if other British ships arrive, he will signal Chesapeake and allow her to get back home. He offers to let him choose where they want to fight and the conditions. But he, he, but he says, you know, just let us fight. Let us uh, settle this contest between ourselves like gentlemen. And it, as it turned out, he didn't actually need to write the letter because Chesapeake's captain, James Florence, was just as obsessed with fighting one of his actions as Brooke was. And he set sail before the letter even reached, uh, reached him in Boston. <laughs> Is there a, a sense of um, the Royal Naval officers being unusually bold? Maybe, maybe a, a, a sort of a sense of... Uh, competitiveness within the ranks. Is that why they're behaving like this? Absolutely, yes. Um, and that comes down, well, in part to a, a, a long tradition of British um, of the British Navy. This is a Navy that in, um, I believe, 1754 or 6, maybe, had court-martialed and shot Admiral Bing, who had failed to engage an enemy fleet in the Mediterranean at a time when he judged um, his mission to have been a, a failure anyway, and it wasn't worth risking his fleet. Uh, but the British were outraged that he'd uh, not done, to quote the Articles of War, his utmost to engage the enemy. Um, this is also a Navy which had court-martialed uh, Admiral Robert Calder in 1805, after he had fought an engagement with a French fleet off uh, Cape Finisterre, and had only actually taken two ships. He hadn't destroyed the fleet. And that was unacceptable to the to the British Navy. He should have engaged further. It was also uh, a condition of the size of the Royal Navy relative to the size of the officer corps. So when the war broke out in 1793, the fleet had rapidly expanded. They had mobilized quickly. And so a lot of officers were brought in to uh, man these ships, to captain and officer these ships. As the war kept going, more and more officers are promoted. They're commissioned as lieutenants, promoted to commander, promoted to captain. Uh, especially after any victory, usually the first lieutenant of any ship is going to be promoted at least. And it gets to the point quickly where there are twice as many officers, especially commanders and captains, as there are ships to command. So the competition for just being given a ship to command at sea is incredibly t intense at this point. And so reputation becomes really important. I'm sure any listeners who, like me, are young and trying to find jobs in the job market can sympathize. 
um, were very far too many of us for jobs that we're trying to get. And so Royal Navy uh, officers are well aware of that being bold, being zealous, being aggressive are the key virtues that the Royal Navy is looking for in their captains. So the bolder you are, the more courageous you are, the better your chances, uh, as most people understood it, um, in getting employed at sea in a time when there really were too many officers. And it doesn't just manifest itself in the in these individual frigate actions, does it? Because there are these quite notable actions between sloops as well. Yes, and that's actually the, uh, the least discussed in historiography aspect of this naval war um, in 1812, but it's actually the most important because it it defies the the standard British historical narrative, which originated with with the public in um, the War of 1812, who latched on to the superior size of the American frigates as justification so that they could continue to understand that their British naval heroes were better than the American ones. That was the key thing that let them continue to believe that. And the, the single, and that continues with really to today. British historians still um, focus on the superior size of those American frigates, um, as basically to, to argue that the actions between Constitution and the British frigates were not even contests, and the outcome was never in doubt. Now that probably was true. That is not how the British captains at the time understood it. And James de Cres, um, in his court-martial after the action, he actually does explicitly say, um, my defeat was not the result of um, the enemy's superiorities of firepower. It was the result of essentially bad luck. Um, probably a, again, trying to sound as bold as possible in his court-martial because he wants to be acquitted and he wants to be back at sea. So he, he emphasizes how courageous he is. And so historians have continued to understand, in Britain anyway, understand these actions as being unfair contests. With the sloops, however, uh, that's not the case. The sloops, there are um, eight or nine, perhaps, of these single ship actions between sloops. And they were, for the most part, between even forces. Um, most of the sloops are armed with 16 or 18 guns usually the same size of carronades so or a, a short but like short range but pretty heavy naval gun. And a few were British victories, but most were American victories. And in these uh, sloop actions, we actually kind of see one of the problems that the Royal Navy is facing at this time. And that is that there's a serious problem of quality control. Uh, some British captains like um, Philip Broke were undoubtedly brilliant at what they did. His, his defeat of Chesapeake in an action lasting just 11 minutes was um, an exemplar of what the world, the best of the Royal Navy was. But um, in contrast to Broke, there was Captain Richard Wales, who was captain of HMS Pervier, a 18-gun sloop of war. And he demonstrated the absolute worst that the Royal Navy had to offer. So Wales had commanded Pervier for a little over a year by the time she was taken in action in late 1813. Uh, he had the highlight of his time in command before engaging with the American ship Peacock was his ship sinking out of moorings in Halifax Harbor. She's later raised, uh, repaired, but no effort was made to really check her equipment. 
So when she goes into action with the American ship a few months later, uh, the fastenings that um, keep the guns at the sides of the deck. So when the ship, the gun recoils, it doesn't careen across the entire deck, start to snap. So the guns, while we're trying to fight the enemy, are literally rolling across the deck. It was, it was a catastrophe, and the ship was completely outmatched. Her crew were not trained properly. Um, they'd only ever fired one gun of live ammunition in their time uh, under whales. And in the court-martial later on, the officers all essentially throw the crew under the bus, and they blame their weakness for the defeat, rather than their inability to train as the factor for the defeat. I like that. Um, I think there's a strong argument that you can make that um, the 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 world has been shaped more by British naval failure than British naval success. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few people agree with me. <laughs> but well, the, it's a the, very, very good one. The whole premise of my work actually has been the impact of mostly defeats on um, Royal Navy history. So I completely agree with that aspect, that idea. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I have to come back for you again, Nick, and we'll, we'll talk about that more. Um, listen, thank you so much for telling us all about these single ship actions. Uh, it's obviously a great deal of important history here. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Do please follow us wherever you engage in social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Particularly, please check out the YouTube channel. Uh, there's some really tremendous stuff there. For those of you listening on an iPhone, please take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It makes an enormous difference. Best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. There is nothing better you can do than join the Society. It doesn't cost very much, but it supports all of the great work we're doing here on the podcast. You get four printed journals as well every year. Uh, You can sign up to come to the annual dinner on board HMS Victory. Very special that experience is. And of course... uh, the subscription supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserving our maritime past. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. 
Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.